Welcome to Writer Types, great conversations with today's top crime and mystery writers. My name is Eric Beatner, and with me is the gravy on my mashed potatoes, S.W. Loudon. Steve, can you tell we're recording uh, right around Thanksgiving time? You know, I did a bunch of puns around Thanksgiving. You told me you were going to edit them out. Well, listeners are going to have to listen on to see if they made the cut or not. The editor has all the power. (laughs) Well, we certainly have uh, a good one for the people this time around, right, Steve? Oh, man, do we. Author Nancy Rommelman is very upfront about our interview style. How does this happen? Like, how does this happen? It just doesn't make sense. And Ian Rankin tells us what he likes to do in his spare time. Basically murdering a pig by giving it an alcohol overdose. Plus, we learn about Crime Writing 101, and all of that is brought to you by our sponsor, Down and Out Books. Some Down and Out titles Writer Types listeners would enjoy are... Well, all of them. I mean, just read anything from Down and Out and you'll be thrilled. But if you need suggestions, try A Better Kind of Hate by Bo Johnson, Beachhead by Jeffrey Hess, and Pine Box for a Pinup by Frank DeBlaze. For even more, visit downandoutbooks.com. Well, Steve, have you read any good books lately? I did, Eric. I read The Man Who Came Up Town by George Pelicanos. Have you read that? Oh, that's the, his new one, right? That is correct. Okay. And it's a story about a book-loving ex-con who has to make some tough choices when he gets out of prison and returns to his native Washington, D.C. I mean, the book has plenty of hard-boiled action that you'd come to expect from Pelicanos, but I really like that it's a slow burn in many ways, too. It's it's like a series of character studies, and the dialogue is phenomenal. I, I really dug it and highly recommend it. How about you? You know, sometimes you you grab a book and you don't really know anything about it or anything about the author and uh, you have going with zero expectations. Uh, I read a book called Runner by uh, Carl Duker, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's D-E-U-K-E-R. But like I say, this was an author that I had uh, no prior knowledge of. And, you know, it's billed as a thriller. And, you know, the blurb on the front says fast paced and suspenseful. And I may take issue with the fast paced part. But uh, it ends up being just a really compelling read. And it really reinforced the fact that the best crime fiction is all about character. And this the character in this book is a teenage boy who's kind of a weirdo, kind of a loser. He's having a tough time. He takes to running, jogging and just to get out of his head. And through a series of events, ends up running these packages for a guy to make a couple extra bucks on the side. And he kind of doesn't know what's in them, but he kind of does know what's in them. And, you know, it ends up becoming a thriller kind of in a sneaky way. It's, it's almost like a coming of age story first and then a crime story second. Wow, it sounds fantastic. Yeah. Well, a good true crime book can be every bit as compelling as a novel, uh, sometimes even more so. Nancy Rommelman's book, To the Bridge, was really one of those books for me. This book tells the true tale of a mother who threw her children off a bridge in 2009, and it tries to get to the bottom of that very bizarre true story. Nancy, you currently live in Portland, but you originally came to Hollywood from your native New York with dreams of becoming a famous actress. Well, you have to understand, this was not a dream, this was my destiny. I was sure <laughs> that this was happening. And so, yeah, I went out there and, uh, you know, worked as a caterer and worked in the film business and then uh, got pregnant and had to actually start making a living and, and wound up becoming a writer. And I am just glad 
whenever <laughs> I got it, but the acting did not work out. <laughs> so. What, was there a particular moment, aside from the pregnancy, when you realized that you were probably destined for a life behind the scenes? Well, yeah, I, that's funny you should ask that question. Uh, after I had my baby, I did go like on one or two last auditions and one was for a, um, it was like a Coke commercial and they just had us like ad lib. They threw us, the director said, just, just stand in front of the camera and just ad lib. So I, I went up there and did that and he, you know, stopped rolling and he looked at me for about literally about 10 seconds and he goes, you know, I don't know if you're right for the part, but you want to write the copy? <laughs> okay. Well, given these Hollywood dreams, yeah. why did you end up choosing journalism and fiction over screenwriting? Well, you know, I think like every writer in Hollywood, I did a little screenwriting and I worked with this crazy, crazy old school screenwriter for a while. And I actually just wrote a script some with someone recently, but I just don't love the form. And I, when I started doing journalism, I mean, from my first article I wrote, I knew that that's all I ever wanted to do. And then you're in Los Angeles where, I mean, I still think it's the best city to write from because everybody brings their unachievable dreams, right? So you get to just watch these people sort of in various uh, positions of sort of failing to achieve their dreams. And for me, this is just a beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, you go you go to the like the dry cleaner on Ventura Boulevard and he's got a picture of himself with like, you know, the actor that played Beretta, you know, right? Like 30 years ago and he's like, you know, he, he used to bring his jackets in here to get dry cleaned and you know, it could still happen. He could still give me a part. It's like, I love you. I just want to write about you. Well, it's lucky for all of us uh, that you went into journalism because your writing is excellent. Um, and your latest nonfiction book, To the Bridge, tells a, a really heartbreaking tale of a mother who throws two of her kids off a Portland, Oregon bridge in the middle of the night. Yeah. Um, why don't you tell us how you became interested in this story? Sure. So it was, um, she, Amanda Stott Smith took her two children, Eldon age four, Trinity age seven to the Selwood Bridge. And shortly before 1.19 a.m. in the morning, May 23rd, uh, 2009, she dropped them off. Eldon drowned, Trinity screamed and screamed and screamed for 40 minutes until some Good Samaritans came out and found her. They also found Eldon. Uh, Amanda was caught nine hours later in a parking garage in downtown Portland. And her mugshot was in the paper the following day. So on a Sunday. And I saw it and I just, I was like, how does this happen? Like, how does this happen? How does a mother, a mother myself though, you know, people have tried to say, oh, well, that's why you wrote that story, Nancy, because you're a mother. Yeah, maybe, yeah, it factors in. But it was, how does someone think this is the right choice? And I was up at my computer, you know, instantly. It's one of those stories where you knew then within two days that I had a book on my hand, that there was going to be a lot here to um, unpack and talk about. And so I stayed on it and did it. And you stayed on it for seven years. You spent yeah, researching. Well, you know, I did give up a few times because <laughs> you know that's uh, what we do. No, it's also I did. You know, I wrote it. Um, I didn't have. I had left my agent. Didn't have agent at the time. Didn't have a publisher. Was just writing, and would you know write, and then you know first getting people to talk to you, and then work super super hard and intensely for maybe a little less than two years, and then just didn't know how to do it. Like you know, trying and then just put it away took it back out, put it away. And then in uh, 2014, just said, screw it. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And then, um, and then the rest came easily. I mean, it, it sold and that was, you know. Well, for, from that initial spark of, of interest that you had to the time that, that you completed the manuscript, I mean, did your relationship to the story change over those years that maybe gave you a new perspective? 
it definitely changed and because people told me the story and you were having you know 32 different people it became this very sort of prismatic story and then people also you know people that i for instance initially had a great deal of empathy for amanda because i had to understand because i could never see doing something like this i was like well it must have been all these horrible things that were happening to her and you know some of that was true but i my relationship to the whole idea of the story did change and i think for the reader it changes too. That's what people have told me. Like they'll read and they're like, oh yeah. And then it's like, everything sort of changes. And then it changes again. Well, I know that was definitely true for me because I, I tore through this book. And one of my favorite things was how you kept from sensationalizing the story. Um, what made you decide to take that approach? I don't even know if I would know how to sensationalize the story. I don't, uh, it, it's just, wouldn't be interesting to me. Um, also, God, what a horrible thing to do for these poor, you know, dead children. I don't know, just keep it at a simmer. And I mean, goodness, you've read the book. There's enough kind of nutty scenes in there that you don't need to sensationalize someone, you know, breaking open a light bulb and smoking a, you know, a whatever, making crack cocaine in a hotel room while their kid is asleep on the bed. I don't need to sensationalize that. Yeah, so you don't need to reach any farther to make her a caricature of this, this evil mother that I think people probably jump to that conclusion when they see a headline like that. The the, the quick and easy way is to just paint her as a hundred percent evil, but you, you you didn't you didn't take the easy way out, I guess. No, it's always evil or crazy, right? And um and I think we do that because, you know, kind of for self-protection. We really don't want to go too much further into this. It's just too much. It's too hard. So if we make our decision and then fuck her and nobody's ever learned anything, you haven't explored it, you haven't unpacked it. And I also, that also really pissed me off. I was in the, um, when she was being sentenced, um, the sentencing judge, I mean, come on, you're a judge and you're sentencing. I think you should have some curiosity about how this happened. Okay, there was no trial. People didn't testify. You know, she pled out. But this judge said, no one will ever understand how this happens. And I'm like, I literally said in my head, oh, yes, we will. It sounds like maybe that was a little bit of a motivating factor for you that to, to spur you on to, to finish the story was trying to get to that understanding. Yes, absolutely. Especially when everybody was telling me that you never will. And also, uh, don't write this because it's a terrible, you're a terrible human being if you write about this. So. <laughs> <laughs> how, how does that make you terrible? It's not like... Well, because, you know, it's, it's private. I'm like, no, I'm sorry. She went to a bridge in a major city and that that's spectacle, you know? Hmm. So if she's trying to create a spectacle, maybe we want to understand why. But on the flip side of that, uh, what did researching and writing this book teach you about forgiveness or the concept of forgiveness? That's, that's an interesting question. Um, I never really, never really felt like it was up to me to forgive Amanda. My only um, brief is to understand. And if understanding, it can be sort of synonymous with forgiveness. Okay. I just wanted to really understand how it happened. How about the people in her life though? Like in sticking with the story for as long as you did, did you see their relationship with forgiveness evolve over the course of time? That's interesting. You know, some of the people in this book would not speak with me. And most people that knew Amanda, um, you know, she was pretty Christian. And I think a lot of people in her life were pretty Christian. They had already forgiven her. They just sort of, that's, you know, how they live their lives and, you know, good for them. That That's how it worked. Uh, the one person I did have a very, very long 18-month relationship with was her grandmother, who couldn't not talk about this. And she really needed to talk 
and no one else in the family would. Like they, they just all shut down. And I think because she told me that it was helpful to, I guess, come to a forgiveness and understanding of what her granddaughter did by being able to speak with me. And that was that was really cool of her. Well, after spending so much time with this story, I, I would imagine that it has to take a little bit of an emotional toll on you. So are you in, into something for a follow-up or looking for something next to do that's uh, maybe a little lighthearted? Or a little... Right about cupcakes. Um, <laughs> Um, no, <laughs> right, right back into the darkness. Every time there's like an absolutely horrific story, like those, those girls that were found in the Hudson river recently, those sisters that were like, they were duct taped by their wrists and ankles and they were found in the river. I, I had three different people write to me and go, Oh, sounds like a story for you, Nancy. It's just, I am not a like dark personality probably the opposite, but I am always drawn to stories where it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> and we're thankful for that, Nancy, we're thankful. <laughs> well, you guys, know, look, look what you guys do. Hello. <laughs> Eric, that really was a dark story, but I gotta tell you, it was probably one of my favorite reads this year. Well, that's great. And it's, it's nice to know that uh, even the true crime writers uh, are light people, even though they're drawn to dark stories. Well, writers are always looking for advice and tips from published authors, and we here at Writer Types, we want to help. And since writer Tom Pitts has a new novel out from Down and Out Books called 101, we asked Tom and two other Down and Out authors to give us their tips for crime writing 101. See what we did there? <laughs> this is Tom Pitts with my tiny soundbite on tips for crime writing 101, which happens to be the title of my newest release from Down and Out, by the way. I'm a little wary anytime I'm asked for writing advice, because I believe so much of this stuff comes directly from the gut anyway. Like so many of the arts, too much forethought is a killer. But it's important to have some parameters so you're able to connect the reader with the action going on in your head. It's important to use an actual floor plan when you're battling out an action scene. An apartment you used to live in, a house you know well, it's the little things. You never know how the direction in which a door may swing can help you steer the chaotic situation you've created towards the outcome the plot needs. When you unleash action into a setting, physics and probability steer things, and it's a struggle to keep things authentic and still move the story in the direction you want. I use places that I've lived in usually, or I've stayed at, or uh, a building that a friend has. But even if you're building it from the ground up, the clearer the floor plan is in your head, the clearer the picture will be for the readers. These things can seem so obvious, and you may wonder why you have to be told at all, but like so many pieces of advice, it's easy to hear it's an entirely different thing to take advice and put it into practice. And that's what all this truly takes, is practice. Hello, my name is Marietta Miles, and I'm an author with Down and Out Books. I wrote Route 12 and May, and my newest, called Drift, will be out next year. I've received a lot of advice in the years that I've been writing. Um, one of the best nuggets I've ever received was from my friend, Renee Pickup. She once told me, while beta reading Route 12 for me, imagine you're at a party and you're telling a story to a new friend. Make it roll like a conversation. Make it natural, sincere, and make it real. I also got an excellent piece of advice from our friend Rob Pierce. He said, if anybody's telling you anything, 
Just don't listen to it. Hi, this is JJ Hensley, and I am the author of Bolt Action Remedy and Record Scratch through Down and Out Books. I'm a former police officer and former Secret Service agent and still work for the federal government around the law enforcement national security realm. So my crime writing 101 advice is involving that area, and that is to de-Hollywood yourself, um, especially those of us who are Generation X and uh, afterwards. We grew up seeing things on TV and in movies that we have come to accept as absolute truths when it comes to crime fiction. And what I mean by this is uh, we've, we've seen the police officers run up and uh, pound on doors and then kick them in uh, and they don't try the knob. Uh, or they kick them in and the door splinters. And when I was a rookie cop, I learned that you, that doesn't always work. Sometimes you just bounce right off and you hurt your leg. Uh, and you, there's so many things. Not all guns have safeties. Um, there's all these things that you see on TV that just aren't true. And we, we've come to expect the cops to say freeze. And no, no cop says freeze. That's a complete TV thing. But yet it happens all the time in books and uh, because people have just come to expect that that's, that's the truth. Uh, so I, that's my biggest advice is to not accept those truths, to do your own research. And even though you are writing those paragraphs and maybe you're on a roll to go back, look at it and say, wait a second, where did I learn that? Where did I accept that truth? Was it from a source? Was it from my own research? Uh, we have all this information at our fingertips now with the internet. Um, but, or, or did I learn it from Miami Vice? Uh, did I learn it through law and order? Because uh, chances are, if you did, you're dead wrong. Well, those are good tips, Steve. I hope everyone uh, wrote those down. But our sponsor, Down and Out Books, is giving one Lucky Writer Types listener their own signed copy of 101 by Tom Pitts. To enter, find us on Twitter, at Writer Types, and tell us your Crime Fiction 101 tips using the hashtag Crime 101. Well, we've had some tips for writing crime. So how about some tips for what we should be reading, Steve? For that, we turn to our resident reviewers, the Malmans. Oh, bring on the Thanksgiving puns. <laughs> yeah. Steve, you're going to be very excited to find out how many of your puns I left in. <laughs> I'm both excited and very worried because I don't know at this point how many I did. You did too many is <laughs> what it was. I think one is too many in a lot of ways. <laughs> Dan and Kate, uh, it is almost Thanksgiving as we're recording this, and, and Eric and I are definitely thankful that you are our resident reviewers, and we'd love to know some books that you're thankful for right now. Awesome, guys. Let me just put on my hat with a buckle and my black and white outfit, and we'll talk about books that we like. And then you burn a witch. <laughs> not if she floats. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Eric, we talked about this. We're not killing any more witches. <laughs> not this year. That's fine. So today, I'm uh, talking about uh, Joe Clifford's first uh, standalone novel, The One That Got Away. Oh, I'm uh, excited about this book. Yes, I think there's a lot of awesome buzz about this. Lots of folks uh, really enjoyed his ongoing Jay Porter series. So with The One That Got Away, really interesting uh, premise. Alex Salerno um, is the sole survivor uh, of a serial abductor. When she was rescued, 
uh, in the early 2000s. Um, her life has kind of been adrift. Uh, she moved out of upstate New York and she is trying to make a go of it um, in the city. 12 years ago, another woman, Kira Shanks, uh, goes missing. And that case was pinned onto a developmentally disabled uh, uh, gentleman who's uh, from Alex's hometown. Everybody uh, is convinced that, that he did it. He's locked away in an institution. Alex gets called back up to upstate New York to do an interview. But I, I think the really interesting part is that everybody keeps focusing on the Kira Shanks mystery. So Salerno is the one that got away. So in, a, in effect, she's in competition with this other abducted woman. Clifford really does a neat job coming at some fairly standard tropes, but from a completely different angle. I have to say that is dark even for Joe Clifford. It's pretty dark, you know? <laughs> um, but it's it's like he's so good with how he weaves his, his words and his, his, his scripting is really cool. He does take some risks and some chances uh, he does some dual narration, um, and I'm, I'm very curious how uh, the response is with that, because he does uh, narrate from the uh, supposed abductor's point of view, um, and he does it respectfully, and he does it with, with emotion and heart, but it's there's definitely some risk to it. Well, that's good. I, I like it when an author takes uh, takes a risk, but then uh, it, it worked for you, obviously. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's there's some things that I liked, and there's some things I didn't like, and uh, but it it definitely kept me turning pages, and that's all I can really ask for. Well, Dan, you know, it sounds like when it comes to the Joe Clifford's latest novel, you're a Trypta fan. Is that true? No, don't oh. even don't even <laughs> respond to that. Don't even. Oh wow, I'm actually bleeding out of my ear. That <laughs> imagine imagine how it feels for me. I have to think this stuff up and say it out loud. You don't have to. <laughs> yeah, you you don't you don't know my compulsions. <laughs> well, Kate, what do you have for us this time around? All right. So, like Dan, I'm reading uh, standalone first standalone by an author. Um, so I picked up Gale Force by Owen Laukinen. Ah. So going back to earlier this year with the uh, tugboat thriller <laughs> hashtag. So I picked it up and I really enjoyed it. Owen does a really really good job of like just pacing the suspense of the novel. So it's but yeah, he does a really, really good job of twisting the two pot plot lines of, you know, the salvaging the ship and the criminal element to it. Um, it does a fantastic job, and and I really, really enjoyed it. I agree. I that's, I that was uh, one of, one of my favorite reads this year. Although I'm still mad at Owen that it is not about a character named Gale Force. <laughs> that I'll never forgive him for that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. All I can say is good gravy. That sounds like a good book. You know, I don't think you understand that I edit this show, Steve, and yeah. I, I'm just going to yeah. cut all this out. Yeah. Well, let, Eric, I know that you edit, but I am what I am. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> don't oh. squash my dreams, dude. Don't squash my dreams. Steve, I dig this song, and I know you do too. 
Tell the folks who we're listening to. This is the band Best Picture with their song Isabel, and that man on lead vocals is none other than Ian Rankin, author of the Rebus novels. Well, we got a chance to speak with Ian at BoucherCon, where he was the recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award. Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Obviously, we have a bunch of questions about your books and novels and long-esteemed career, but we've been listening to your band Best Picture and the song Isabel, and it is fantastic. It's a pretty catchy tune. It is. It's a catchy tune, yeah. I mean, you know, like most uh, mystery novelists that I know, most novelists I know, I'm a frustrated rock star. I'd much rather be a rock star than a writer. Um, and when I was 17, 18, I did join a band on vocals, writing the lyrics, and we lasted a few months, and we had a bit of fun. And that purged it, really, got it out of my system for 40 years. Wow. And then last year, I was asked by a, a bunch of middle-aged men in Edinburgh if I'd like to join their band. And yeah, so I'm back into it again. And we did our first single last year, and we played some gigs, and we've got a second single pretty much ready to go. Yeah, we're having some fun. What, what kind of gigs are you playing? Well, the first one we did. There's a band in the UK called The Charlatans, and their lead singer, I know him well, he's a, he's a friend, and we've worked together, I've done stuff with him, uh, Tim, and he said, look, I've got a tent that I do at this festival called Kendall Calling in northwest England, summer festival, come and play it my, in my tent. Headlined by the Libertines and headlined by Grandmaster Flash, and at the bottom of the bill, there was Best Picture. And we, so but the thing is, our keyboard player couldn't come because he was going on vacation. So instead, the, uh, the drummer said, or the guitarist said to me, he said, well, Ian, just bring a kazoo. We'll do, it with it. We'll do all his keyboard, his intricate keyboard parts with a kazoo. So it was, you know, we had a lot of fun. So you've started a whole new genre of indie rock that's called kazoo rock. Kind of. Yeah. You know? One of the reviews said it was like a Scottish Iggy Pop. And I don't think that's the voice so much as just me jerking around on stage. I, mean, I think that's what that is. That's shirtless. The, not quite shirtless, thank God. <laughs> No peanut butters? No peanut butter, no cutting myself up with a microphone stand. Uh, <laughs> but can he, you know, I, I think what they mean is a man of a certain age who's more energetic than he should be. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you also write books, so yeah. that's, that's covered, all done. <laughs> Well, no, uh, you're here uh, at BoucherCon in Florida to achieve, receive the Lifetime Achievement Award, so congratulations on that. But is there a small part of you that feels like we're trying to put you out to pasture? <laughs> yeah, I mean, tell me about it. There's a thing in the UK called the Diamond Dagger, which is a kind of a Lifetime Achievement Prize. And they gave me that like a decade ago. <laughs> you know, come on, it's like they're saying to you, just go away now and let the younger people get, a, get some uh, traction. Um, it's, you know, it's, of course it's very flattering and it isn't a sign you're at the end of your career, I hope. But what it means is you've got a body of work behind you that people respect. And I didn't get into this game thinking I was ever going to have a body of work. I wrote the first Inspector Rebus novel when I was a student. And I just wanted to write about contemporary Edinburgh and I thought a cop was a good way because a cop can give you access to different layers of society from the top to the bottom. And I didn't think of myself as a mystery writer. I didn't read mystery fiction. Uh, I had read Shaft when I was a kid, because <laughs> I wasn't old enough to see the movie. They wouldn't let me in. It was an X certificate, 18. You had to be 18 to get in to see it. And I was 12. So the first thing I did was buy the single. You know, Isaac Hayes, I've still got it. Uh, and then because I couldn't see the movie, I went and read the book. And that was the thing about books for me, was that books were like a secret world that the adults didn't think you were allowed into. Uh -huh. So I wasn't old enough to go and see The Godfather, but I could read the book. 
There you go. I wasn't old enough to go and see The Exorcist, but nobody stopped me reading the book. So books were like forbidden fruit, and that was really exciting to me. Um, Americans like to poke fun at Scottish accents a little bit, or, or we try to make our best at doing a Scottish accent, which I'm sure you find laughable. It's because we're jealous. But we also have <laughs> crazy accents of our own regionally. So when you come to a place like Florida, do you wander around the whole time trying to figure out what the hell everybody's saying? <laughs> You know, there's quite a weird thing where if you're British and you come to the States, you might not think anybody has an accent. But a lot of people sound roughly the same. They're, they're using the same intonation and they're using the same pronunciation for words. And then, of course, Americans think that's hilarious because they can tell, you know, every, every hundred miles is a different accent, a different, right. kind of, you know, a different way of speaking. I do find it interesting that uh, you can tell a Canadian accent from an American accent took me a little while, but you can do it. And it's just certain words. And I guess it's like that in Florida as well. There are certain words that if someone says it, you'll know they're from Florida. Right. You'll know they're from Michigan. Yeah. You'll know they're from New York. Just by the way, they'll say a certain word. Um, Edinburgh is interesting because, of course, when you're writing novels, you think, okay, what do I do? Do I use the language? Do I use the, the slang? Do I use the vernacular? Um, if you do that, you're going to alienate quite a lot of your readers. So what I always say is I write in fairly received pronunciation. I write in kind of standard English. But a Scottish reader will put their own rhythms in there and they'll start to slide their own words in there and stuff. Um, and I do try and sneak a few Scottish words in. And then my English editor down in London will say, well, what does that mean? And then, of course, you get to the States and they're changing a lot, you know. I mean, I've often got a fight, even with titles of books. For example, there's a title of a book of mine, and in the UK it's called Flesh Market Close. In the US it's Flesh Market Alley. It's a real street in Edinburgh which happens to be called Flesh Market Close. A close is a kind of alleyway. And my American publisher felt that would stop American people reading the book because they wouldn't know what it meant. So they changed it to Flesh Market Alley. Then American fans come to Edinburgh and they go, why did you change the name of the, this great street? You know? And what publishers often don't realize is that, well, several things, but number one, above all, <laughs> readers are not stupid. You know, people read, who read fiction are pretty intelligent people and they want the, they want the local culture. You know, and it's not as bad as some languages. You know, sometimes my books are translated, and you go, "That makes no sense at all." The translator <laughs> hasn't. You know, in my last book that was published in, the, in France, in France, if they don't understand a cultural reference, they leave it in in English, and they put a little footnote to the bottom of the page. And this was a line, and I think it's from a fairly well-known film. The line was, "I get the feeling we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto." Yeah, I've heard of that. All right, yeah. okay. So, they leave it in English. Footnote. Oh, you go to the bottom, and in French, it says, Rebus here is referring to the two American AOR bands, Kansas and Toto. <laughs> and you go, that makes no sense at all. amazing. Well, the next book in this Rebus series, Even Dogs in the Wild, uh, it's number 20 in the series, and it's being billed as the new John Rebus. So, what do you have in store? Like, what, what makes him new? Yeah, I mean, that's just marketing speak, isn't it? A lot of people are, <laughs> He's the same saying, old Well, I mean, a lot of fans at the convention have said to me, oh, so you've done away with Rebus and brought a new Rebus in. What? No. It's just a new book featuring John Rebus. Come on. It's just a way of getting you excited about it. Uh, <laughs> and people often say, what keeps a series fresh? You know, what keeps it interesting for you as an author when you've done so many books with the same character? He's a different character. Whenever I start writing a new book, he has changed. Yeah. You know, he's no longer a cop. He's got older, he's got slower, he can't get into a fist fight anymore, he can't intimidate people with his heft, his physical size, he's now in his mid to late 60s. Um, all kinds of things make him different from the previous book, and that keeps him interesting for me. According to your bio, you've worked as a grape picker, a swineherd, a music journalist, 
and a taxman, interestingly, yeah. before becoming a full-time writer, if it all fell apart tomorrow and you had to go back to one of those professions, which one would you choose? Oh, well, that's, that's pretty straightforward. I, it was, I was a music journalist. I wasn't really a music journalist. I worked on a monthly magazine that specialized in high-end audio equipment. So I got lots of free high-end audio equipment. I used to get lots of CDs and LPs sent to me free to listen to, to review them and stuff. What a great job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whether you're in your 20s or your 50s, that's a great job. Mm -hmm. Thing is, towards the end, I shouldn't admit this, but it, time has passed. I, I was writing more fiction in my reviews than fact. Oh. You know, I was sent a $100 pair of speakers from Korea. I'd look at the box, I'd look at the, the, the marketing information, I'd go, I know exactly how these all sound. <laughs> I don't need to open the box. I don't need to take them home. I don't need to plug them in. And I would just write the review. But being a journalist, and especially that kind of journalism, was really good practice for being a novelist. That's yeah. good training, yeah. Yeah, really. I, and I think I owe you 20 bucks because I was sure he was going to say swineherd. I, I was, uh, my I money was, was on taxman. I was the world's worst swineherd. Uh, <laughs> we were working in a vineyard, my girlfriend and I, now my wife. We, when we left university, we went hitchhiking around Europe, ended up in a vineyard in France. There was a farm attached to the vineyard. And uh, we were looking after the pigs. But I killed one of them accidentally by giving it an alcohol overdose. Oh, my God. You really were the world's worst yeah. swineherd. Very quickly, some of the, so you, the, the grapes were picked. We tread the grapes in the old-fashioned way, which means big open-top barrels full of grapes. You get naked, you get in, you start jumping up and down in the grapes. So then the next day, we're supposed to feed the skin and the pips to the pigs because it's nutritious, but we're hungover. We've been drinking all day and all night. So it sits out in the sun for a day. By the time we feed it to the pigs, it's fermenting. Oh, One no. of them didn't make it. <laughs> wow. So my swineherd days ended up with me basically murdering a pig. But you married the girl. I married the girl. So. We've been married, oh geez, 32 years. Never eaten bacon since. No, I'm not joking. <laughs> Eat bacon all the time. You know, Eric, stop the tape. As long as we're giving out Crime Fiction 101 advice, we also asked Ian Rankin for some tips. Oh, well, Steve, if there's anyone that we should be listening to for advice, it, it's him. So you're, you're here to receive your Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, there are also many writers just starting out who are at Bausher Khan trying to find their way in. Uh, so do you have any words of wisdom for somebody who'd like to follow in your footsteps and one day get a Lifetime Achievement Award yeah. of their own? Go to Bausher Khan. Yeah. The first Bausher Khan I went to was 1992 in Toronto. My wife and I uh, took her six-month-old son with us and he was crawling on the carpet of the book dealer room while I was looking at books. And this woman said, oh, what a cute kid, can I pick him up? Uh, she turned out to be married to a guy called Otto Penzler. Uh, <laughs> and so I met him, and he had a publishing house at the time, and he read my books, and he said, I want to do a six-book deal. So, wow. so my six-month-old, so, okay, my advice would be bring a, a kid. There you go. <laughs> bring a small toddler to BoucherCon. And at the following BoucherCon I went to, I met the guy who became my agent in the States as well. So it's, it's networking, it's getting to know people. But, you know, people ask me this a lot, and I always give them the same kind of 10 rules. You can find them on the Guardian website. Guardian's an English newspaper. Just go to the Guardian website, put an Ian Rank, and you'll find it somewhere, the 10 rules. Number one is get lucky, and number 10 is stay lucky. There's no kind of magic bullet for this stuff. You've got to be persistent. You've got to be able to take criticism and learn from it, and just keep writing. My first book was never published. My second book's book sold about 500 copies. First Rebus book made no money or anything at all for me. I was on Rebus novel number 10 before it became a bestseller in the UK. 
and Rebus novel number 17 before it became a bestseller in the US. Wow. So you've got to stick at it. All right. Or else go and be a rock star. That's yeah. much, much easier. Well, Steve, as if that's not enough show, we can't leave this time without giving away yet another book. Yep. Last episode, our friends at Rare Bird Books offered up a copy of Peter Leonard's Raylan Goes to Detroit to a listener who gave us their suggestion for where Raylan should go next. And our winner is... Dwayne McIntosh. Congratulations, Dwayne. A signed copy of Raylan Goes to Detroit will be on its way to you soon. Well, Steve, that's it for this time. What did we learn? Ian Rankin taught us how not to be a swineherd. <laughs> yeah, that's some advice of his that I'm not taking. It's how to take care of pigs. I've actually already had t-shirts printed up with his quotes about that. <laughs> Well, Nancy Rommelman taught us that the truth is sometimes stranger than fiction. And that is something I just thought up just right now. 100% mine. That's really original, Eric. Thank you. I think it's going to catch on. Moving on, special thanks to our sponsor, Down and Out Books. For some of the best crime fiction out there, visit downandoutbooks.com. Uh, you might even find some books by Eric and myself. Also, special thanks to Ian Rankin for giving us permission to use his band Best Picture and their song, Isabel. You can find a video for the song on YouTube, and there's also a limited edition pink vinyl 7-inch available from Oriel Records. Please subscribe to the show, and we always appreciate it when you leave us a review. This show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. For more on Steve's books, visit swloudon.com. And for more on Eric's books, go to ericbeatner.com. Join us next month for our year-end wrap-up. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.